Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, that was Anthony Phillips and Caprice in Free, one of my favourite tracks from his new album Strings of Light, due out shortly on Esoteric Antenna. I've got the huge pleasure of welcoming Anthony today to the Strange Brew podcast to talk about his new album, as well as a range of songs from his critically acclaimed solo career, over the past 40 years, as well as his time as a founding member of Genesis. So let's hear my chat with Anthony. Hello. Hi, is that Anthony? It is, yeah. Hi, it's uh, Jason here from yeah. the Strange Brew. Strange Brew, yes. Which Are you a Cream fan? Absolutely. Ah, uh, well, let me tell you, I was at their very first gig. Oh, Wow. Windsor Jazz and Blues Festival would have been late August 66. I was a youngster. I got mugged on the way back, actually, at the station at Richmond, but they did just three numbers. I mean, it, it was they were miles in the distance, but the excitement was palpable. It really was. Great days. Yeah. Great days. Yeah, you bet. You have a new album out, Strings of Light, and I understand that's the first album you've recorded in seven years? It is indeed. That's right. So could I ask uh, why it's taken so long? Well, I've been concentrating a lot on re-releases, as you probably know. Yes, of um, Cherry Red took on the catalogue, um, sort of revivifying the, the old catalogue, which meant delving into the vaults to find old material and all that kind of thing. And so as well as, as, well as that, you know, I earn a, a big proportion of my living from doing TV music. So I've been diving, diving between the two, really. And... Uh, the, the re-releases did t- actually take quite a lot of time and energy because you had to do all this sort of bibliographical stuff as well and updating various things. So between that and um, some complicated family issues as well, it hasn't, it hasn't wasn't in a terribly easy time to sort of really get one's teeth into a major new project. But, I mean, this is, if you think that I actually started this two years ago um it looks like five years but of course actually uh, it's only really three from the time when i began it so um it's not sort of like i you know i sort of went away to join the army in the meantime or something mm-hmm. and am i right that you played a different type of guitar on every track well there's there's i mean this 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 classical guitar this 12 string guitar i mean there are there are there are yes. different there are you know, similar types of guitar, but quite a lot of different classical guitars, different guitars, quite a lot of variation, trying to make as much variation to of timbre and sound as possible, because I think if someone's listening just to, you know, a solid classical guitar album, it can be the best music in the world, but after a while, it just, the sound, you just get a little bit, a little bit um, used to the same timbre, and the, maybe the light and shade uh, isn't isn't there, so... I kind of was trying to see if we could make it as varied as possible just within that. And there is, in fact, a little bit of multi-tambral stuff, and there, there are some extra instruments here and there. It's mainly solo, but there are a few, o- the old overdub and overlapping and little links with more guitars, so it's not quite as spartan as it might sound. One of my favourite pieces is Caprice in Free, and that was on classical guitar, wasn't it? Oh, really? Yes, that's interesting. Yes, somebody else was suggesting tracks they didn't mention that but yes it was absolutely yes oh thank you did you write the tracks on uh, the instrument that you played on the album was it that once you'd written it you felt that a particular guitar was appropriate for the song that you had uh, written i think that a lot i think to be honest a lot of them were just 
were just begun, you know, as rough ideas, and I couldn't tell you what guitar they were played on. So I was taking, going back and looking and, and delving into my um, existing material, um, and uh, you know, just developing. So what, what, which it didn't really matter which particular guitar it was um, that it was written on. Um, well, that, it, well, except there was the old thing, like the sixteen string. I've only obviously only got one sixteen string, so. But yeah, no. Some some of them, I just, I just, I, I would then adapt them and develop them on the best guitar I thought was was fit for the idea. Do you know the a very distinctive twelve string sound that's featured in tracks like Winterlight on your new album? Is it important to keep going back to the twelve string? Well, I don't know really. I mean, I just naturally go there. I don't sort of think it's important or. It's just what I, what I, you know, it's a kind of something I've always done. You know, Genesis was one early big feature of Genesis when we were moving on was two 12 strings combined, you know, and 12 string guitars used in a, in a way that wasn't as rhythmic as other people were doing. You know, we were doing it in a slightly more multi timbral way, playing around with chords and arpeggios and stuff. And I've always loved that style, really. So, yeah, actually, funny enough, that Winter Lights has got some quite early material. Most of the, most of the stuff on the album is all in, uh, written in the last five years, but there's a couple of things, that and Shoreline, which have a lot of material going back to 1971, believe it or not. Gosh, so there's some material where you've dug back to get? Yes, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think Winter Lights, a lot of the development section was new. Yes, it is new, actually, all the middle part, but uh, Shoreline actually was, is, all, is all from that time when I was but a youngster.
They just seem to be afraid with your sound, even going back to your very earliest demos, such as Patricia. And it, again, it does have that distinctive sound of yours, even at that early stage. Really? Well, that's very kind of you. Well, that goes back to when I was 13, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was... Well, well that's very kind of you. I, I don't think I was particularly original at that time, but it's very kind of you. Maybe that one was, but most of the rest of it was just poor Rolling Stones and poor Beatles. But um, thank you. And in that early period, you played with Mike Rutherford and you developed that dual 12-string sound together. And ultimately, I think that's what made you more distinctive. I think so. Um, I mean, other people are obviously doing stuff with 12-string, but I don't think... And there were groups doing phenomenal guitar work. Uh, you know, Bert Yance, John Remborn, you had Simon Nichol and um, Richard Thompson yeah, in Fairport, uh, you know, on, on six strings. But I, I, as far as I'm aware, we were... One went to the only ones we can't have been, but we were one of the most prominent ones doing stuff with two twelve strings, which people wouldn't often think. They think maybe that sounds going to be too rich, but it's, it depends what you do with it, doesn't it? Really, and we, we just were both seduced by the sound of it. Really, I loved the combination of doing slightly different things to each other, but which complemented, not just doubling up, you know, like two guys just strumming along, great creating a bigger sound there's nothing particularly clever about that might as well overdub it but the interplay between the two was what we found fascinating
you said before that in some ways the debut Genesis album, or certainly parts of it, are kind of derivative. Although there's some tracks, like The Conqueror, which now have a big following, and I think that's one of the tracks that isn't laden with strings. Yeah, I mean the whole strings issue was a, was a nightmare for us because we 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 you know I mean I, I accept in in retrospect that the album was you know our playing was pretty rough and probably didn't sound as commercial as it, sh- as it should do and so we were back at school last year of school. Jonathan King puts his strings on. Well, that's all very well except the problem was he meant mixing the backing track down to down to mono. So what had been you know, quite a quite a, a nice record to listen to, all bit pretty damn rough. It was quite powerful. Suddenly became a bit, a bit, a bit insipid to be honest. And we weren't particularly keen. when we were told strings. We imagined lush, full strings, chords and stuff. But we didn't really feel the high wheelers, as we called them, really, really did did add, added that much, and it took a lot away. So, um, but you're quite right. I mean, it was much more derivative. I think we had sort of elements of our own style by that and i think the conqueror was one of the more original i can't think of many tracks on that album which were terribly like another band where we were trying to be like another band but you are right we probably hadn't as a group we hadn't got a distinctive style each songwriter had something that was distinctive but i don't think that the the group itself had found a kind of a um, a real niche which made them sound different that took that took a lot of practice and a lot of development when we went on the road.
heard that Visions of Angels was actually a track that dates from the Genesis to Revelation period, but the production on it, on Trespass, is a huge leap forward, and I assume that that's been brought on by the playing of all the band that really came up a level in that period. Yeah, well, it was done in a very different way. It was done using organ and um, big drums, and um, I mean, there were drums on the original version, but the original version was pretty limp. I mean, you know, it was regarded as one of the star tracks of that album. So, you know, as I've always said, it had to be a pretty grim version to be left off. We, I don't, don't think we just really knew how to make it sound good. Is the truth of it? Um, so it was a mercy that it came, that we uh, that it came to light later. We they didn't have that instrumental section in the original version because that was organ based.
to freeze See the sunlight stopped and deadened by the breeze Minds are empty, bodies move insensitive This world, it's been long ago. Why she's never there, I still don't understand. Visions of angels all around, dance in the sky. Leaving me here forever, goodbye. Another great example of the leap on that album is the knife and the interplay between the band on that track really, really resonates. Yes, I mean, it took a lot of work. I mean, it was it's a really transformation from just, as I was saying, just now being individual songwriters where the others would gather around to the, whoever song it was, sing along a bit. I'd pick up a guitar if it was piano and vice versa, add a bit of bass, a bit of basic drums, and that that was it, really. But it it wasn't. Um, you know, and it was songs, and some of them were, some of them were better and more appealing and durable than others. But when we um, arrived at the prospect of going on the road, obviously we had um, we, some of those songs were going to be a bit limp for that. So we we um, we actually did have a lot of stuff which was a bit bluesy and terribly derivative to start with, and really not very very good. Um, and it gradually got. Uh, pushed aside for the the newer material which I mean it needed a lot of experimentation because it wasn't things like the knife and looking for I mean the knife was slightly the basic part of the knife was influenced a little bit by the knife by Keith Emerson but Mm, mm. you know the development was um, 
Um, yeah, I mean, it was like a it was like a trip into the unknown, really. We just sort of we we set off um, on that middle section. Just one person would get one idea, one person got another idea, and we just sort of um, hoped these different sections would flow, and it did seem to, and it became it became popular. So I think along that way, we did discover a sort of um, a style, and obviously the group then took that much further subsequently.
it was a nice touch that a piece of yours formed the introduction to Musical Box from Nursery Crime, even though you'd left the band at that time? Well, I mean, Mike and I actually worked on... It was his original idea, um, and he discovered this bizarre tuning, F-sharp tuning, but we did originally work on some of the sections, two or three of the sections that became part of that, yeah. And then you went deeper into music and uh, studied more after you left the band? Well, I did, yeah. I mean, I, I, I and it was, a, it was a difficult time. I mean, I was a youngster. I was only 18, you know, and I found the whole life on the road just was, was you know, it was just a, a tricky one for me. And I think mm. it probably mm. is for most people, it's the truth, but it's not an ideal life for most. Um, and there's a hell of a lot of pressure on you. Um, so, yeah, I, I found it too much, and so I... Um, I went my own way, but not because of musical differences. Um, and then uh, found myself kind of slightly at a loose end, but then sort of gradually picked it up and learnt various things. Well, I, if I say I studied classical music, it always sounds a bit sort of a bit highfalutin, doesn't it, really? But I mean, I, I, I certainly wanted to know how to orchestrate, because after our experience with the strings on from Genesis to Revelation, having no say... I was determined to try and learn how to do that. So I would, even if I wasn't the orchestrator myself, I would speak the same language and and wouldn't be uh, a sort of not duped, but you know wouldn't be confused again. So yeah, it was quite difficult doing formal study when you've already learned to play by ear. That is quite a challenge actually. But um, I was lucky; I had some really good teachers and. Um, you know, along the way, discovering a lot of great music which had been, um, which I hadn't really kind of been able to appreciate before, really. Just a little bit more 
play me my song Play me my song
she's got time Brush back your hair And let me get to know your face She's a lady, she is mine Classical music establishment looked down on pop music terribly, and um, and sort of vice versa, really. And I think that at schools now it's so much more sort of homogenous. Really, people can do both quite happily. But yeah, it was pretty narrow then. So uh, so well, I, I mean, I, I feel lucky that I discovered a lot of things. Which pro- I might, if I'd stayed in the group, I might have remained quite narrow. I mean, I regret missing out on some of the great pieces they did, but. Um, I won't say more than compensated, but certainly very compensated by some of the things I discovered. And obviously being able to, to get involved in orchestral music later has been an absolute delight, really. I mean, I love it. Film music, a lot of my favorite current music, really. For me, a lot of the best music being written is actually music written for films. That's funny you should say that. There's a, a wonderful track of yours called Sad Ballerina from the album Soiree. Um, I think that would be perfect for a film. 
Well, that's very kind of you. Falling on Your Feet has actually been orchestrated. How brilliant. It, it is actually available uh, in its library form. Fantastic. Certainly, I would. I want to, I mean, as I've done with Seventh Heaven, I want to release some of this music. Yes, I mean, what he's done is he's given it an extra sort of, uh, uh, sort of nuance of kind of sadness. It almost sounds like something from quite Italian, almost like maf- mafioso at times, actually. Yeah, but I think he's taken what's in the harmony and and just and, and it didn't need much. It's just when you when you those particular intervals when they're transcribed onto strings, actual solo violin did sound quite Sicilian, sad and Sicilian. <laughs>
even after you left Genesis, you were back in the studio after a year or two, continuing to work with Mike, including on the single that never was by Phil Collins. I think that was in 1973, Silver Song. Um, how did that sort of um, play out? Well, funny if I, um, I got to know Phil pretty well, even though I wasn't in the group with him at the time, actually. And um, so uh, he was very kind when Mike and I was beginning to sort of do demos and stuff together uh, on various different projects, which I suppose sort of built up in some respects to the, um, the geese and the ghosts. But Phil would often trot over and help with various things. We had There was a modern hymn we did for Christmas, for instance, and he came down with a group of friends and just helped do a bit of singing on it. So he was always very much... Um, and I used to go to a lot of their gigs in the early days when it, before it got really, really big and got to know him well. So I think he'd... he'd I'm just trying to remember the exact, the exact timeline. He'd either just done... No, I think I think actually we tried the Silver Song demo before he did More Fool Me. Um, and it was around that time that we, uh, you know, we were mucking about this stuff. And um, mm, mm. Mike and I had this track, which was a bit different. It was a bit country, you know, and quite simple. And Phil, the demo that we did was, was great fun. And Charisma liked it very much and said, well, come on, let's, let's go ahead and do this. And... Um, the master recording was done over a long, over a, on a weekend during a tour, and everyone was a bit tired. And the record company at the time felt the master didn't quite live up to the promise of the demo. But and then it strangely sort of sat on the shelf. I've never was really to this day was quite sure what went on there. Maybe they thought it was too early in retrospect when they got all the others together to have a Phil Collins single ahead of a Genesis hit because at that stage uh they hadn't had the i mean it wasn't a huge hit but they hadn't had the the first single uh relative success with uh, uh i know what i like um so it was yes it was one of the mysteries really there was a disappointment from from a little bit of disappointment from the record company from us but all my friends loved it you know they just thought it was terribly commercial and, and you know, it got used to get terribly frustrating, endlessly. People saying, well, "You know, what's happening to this, and when's it coming out, and all the rest of it." And uh, I never really had a good answer to be honest. But I'm glad that people were able to hear it in a decent form in the end, because it was bootlegged mercilessly and often in really rotten quality. Dear friend, when you're gone, there'll always be this song to remind you of where you once belonged. Though far you fly away, your face will bless the day. Each tree, each stream, each flower All they need to say The sun will shine again The dawns will rise again And we'll be together until 
after that single that never was you worked on the album that became the geese and the ghost and carried on working with mike and phil on, on tracks like which way the wind blows well i mean again you see because i don't i used to get some stick afterwards because by the time the album came out he was their lead singer but of course when we were doing all these things he was far from it indeed and um so, um, in fact, when we did those two tracks, Genesis were in a state of hiatus, and they were auditioning singers. At that stage, there was no question of Phil Collins being the singer. So that, that was a completely a fallacious argument and criticism that came out. He was the natural choice because he'd worked with Mike and I on various different things, and he was very familiar with the, obviously with Mike's style, but he's pretty familiar with our, my, our combined style as well. So, I mean, he literally just came down to the studio and I mean, I think we'd had a little rehearsal of it, but he was so quick and, um, you know, did, did, it, did both in an afternoon, I think. Some spend their days in slumber 
And next we have your second album, Wise After the Event, an album where you were, it seems, pushed much more up front on lead vocals, including the title track. Yeah, well, I think the, I think what was going on in the business, of course, was there was a reaction against a lot of the uh, sort of long, straggling, complicated pieces as being purported by a number of the uh, prog groups and stuff. And obviously punk had come in and there was a, there was a, a kind of a, a drive uh, that 
got a bit out of control, I think, in retrospect, um, to going back to very, you know, to simple music. I mean, I don't think the people, I never had any quarrel with the people who were the sort of protagonists of punk, if you like, because they were really just a sort of another form of, of what bands have been doing in 62, 63, 64, right, you know, pretty rough, rebellious, anti-establishment music. I mean, I would argue a lot of those had more talent than some of the later ones, and I think that's been shown by what's endured, but, mm-hmm. you know, that's splitting hairs, really. I mean, the fact is that there was an inevitable cycle. What was wrong was that the uh, what was that suddenly everybody else was expected to sort of go back into reverse gear and try and do angry young men music when you're not a young, well, I mean, I was tw- only 25, 26, but I wasn't 13 or 14. Mm. I mean, the irony is about a lot of the people in the punk, uh, punk movement actually had actually, they were sort of second time round. They'd failed the first time round. But uh, so we were all under pressure to do songs and to try and do stuff that was more commercial. Not that one was trying to do stuff that was deliberately uncommercial, as in weird, but just, you know, not trying to do two or three minute angry pop songs or angry songs about, you know, saccharine love and stuff. And so Wise Art Event, I was sort of on the cusp really there, really, because by the time the sides came around, there really was a lot of pressure to do much simpler stuff. Um, but Wise Art Event, I was sort of in between the two, really. It was like this better be songs. And um, nobody was saying to another geese of the ghost. There was no encouragement to, to pick that up at all, actually, which is interesting, which just goes to show what the sign of the times was um and um there was no obvious other singer so they just it was a sort of still a kind of singer songwriter time really so you know why don't you have a go and do it i mean in retrospect i'm not sure i really should have done but um i was very lucky to work with mike giles john perry and obviously rupert hine as well and uh yeah i mean the the title track was was great fun on my lovely coldstream rickenbacker
And then as we go into the 1980s, 1990s, you released a series of albums under the Private Parts and Pieces series, particularly like She'll Be Waiting, which was from Dragonfly Dreams from the mid-90s. Oh, that's very kind of you. Yeah, well, that was actually from my lovely record boss at um, Virgin, Declan. He he lost his wife. Uh, it was just a routine operation, and she died. And uh, the song, that song was written for him, actually. And... Um, Yes, I was very fortunate, really, compared to a lot of other people, because so many prog groups of, of various different shades and hues sort of went to the wall, really. But I managed to keep going, and uh, although I was having to make my living mainly from other things, I managed to keep up a steady output, but obviously on a kind of modest uh, canvas, if you like, doing more acoustic-y things, home things. And that's why the private parts pieces idea which was initially just a one-off it, then it became something generic as a way of, of finding an outlet for material that didn't cost a lot of money but you know had a bit of sort of mm. intimacy um lyricism to it at a time when you know there wasn't a you know perhaps stacks of music like that so yeah i felt pretty i felt lucky to to do do stuff i mean some of them were more organized than others some are more scrapbooky than others but you know even the scrapbook ones as i said the sort of collage ones had a lot of had their fans so um it's been a funny old mix you never know who's going to like which album really there were big supporters of 1984 and those that thought like gone start raving bonkers you know it's uh it's quite a it's quite a i have moved around quite a bit but a lot of it was dictated by record companies Find the strength somehow to get through For it will all make sense The final love She'll be waiting for Find the strength somehow to get through For it will all make sense In the final hour She'll be waiting for me She 
And about a decade ago, you worked with Steve Hackett on the song Sleepers from his Out of the Tunnel's Mouth album. How did you get to link up with Steve and um, play on that track? Well, Steve and I had sort of met at various events over the years, but um, uh, he, he had a disastrous end to his first marriage, and around that time, I went over to to meet him and his new his uh, new girlfriend Joe, he's later married, and uh, we just became very close, really exchanging stories about our Genesis period. And I think there were some similar things we'd experienced, and we uh, we became sort of kindred spirits, really, and uh, mm. became very good friends. And we we regularly meet now. There's a certain group, a uh, couple of old friends of his, and we meet. And uh, so yeah, he just asked me if I'd come over. At that time, he was doing the album on the kitchen table. I literally just brought a twelve string in, and he said, "Well." You know, see what you can come up with on this. And I was very lucky because what I came up with seemed to appeal to him and to Roger King. And so um, mm. that was great fun. I mean, very easy to work with, a uh, delightful man, you know, and so talented.
And then to close, Anthony, you've got so much material to choose from from across your career. Is there a track that we haven't talked about that might be fitting to close the podcast? Gosh, um, well, I was always, I was very proud of the end part of the album called Slow Dance, about the last two or three minutes of it, where it just uh, kind of is quite romantic and then it just kind of dissolves in a very peaceful, drifty way. I always quite like to end albums like that. But, I mean, Life Story is another example, isn't it, really? Because you sort of you end it in a way on on the new album. You you leave people in a state of peace and calm rather than leaving them in a state of, you know, angst. So I would probably choose that. Brilliant. Let's close on Life Story. Also the closing track from your new album, Strings of Light. Before we go, you've also said that there are no overdubs on that particular song. Well, I wasn't trying to show off too much, but uh, I was trying to show off a little bit, which was the the last bit was damn difficult because there's two different things going on. And people probably thought, oh, he's overdubbing this. Uh, and I, I just wanted to wanted the people to know that that was mm. all, it was all, you know, it is possible to play that all at the same time. Basically, you're using your right hand to do the shimmering and uh, the... the uh, and the left hand is actually hammering um, by itself. So, yeah, I, it was a kind of a, a slight conceit, but more actually just, just showing that it can be done all as, as, you know, without overdubs, if somebody wants to have a go. Thank you so much for your time, Anthony. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very, very much indeed. You take care of yourself, and thanks a lot for that. Bye-bye. Bye-bye then.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.